So if you listen to this podcast or you follow me on social media, you know my new book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, drops this week. And I just want to say thanks. Thanks for supporting me, for supporting my career, for supporting this podcast. I actually called my mom this morning, shortly after filming a segment at the Today Show. And I told her that while waiting my turn, I found myself staring at the cameras and the hosts, looking down at the street in Manhattan and thinking, how did my life get here? So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for helping me get here. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is, uh, well, here's the thing. I have a book coming out, and this is my damn podcast, and I need to eat. So my longtime pal, Michael J. Lewis, not the Moneyball Michael J. Lewis, is serving as guest host as we discuss The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. This is episode number 282. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, so generally, I'm the host of this podcast, and I'm very insistent I'm the host of this podcast, damn it, because it's my podcast. But today, because we are talking about The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, my new book, uh, and because he's read every one of my books and has helped edit, proofread, et cetera, every one of my books, I have my former Delaware classmate, former staff member of the review, the University of Delaware student newspaper, the man I hired, even though he came up to the newspaper office wearing a jean jacket and a jet pendant, which is still kind of weird. Uh, Michael J. Lewis, otherwise known as not Moneyball Michael Lewis. If I had a dollar for every time you've told a story about me wearing that Jets pendant, I would have more money than uh, the other Michael Lewis, who's the book author. So, you know, you love telling that story. And by the way, I might break out that Jets pendant again now that they're steamrolling toward the playoffs, but. Do you still have the Jets pendant? I do not. I do not. I, I have no idea. I got lost somewhere in the many moves I've made in my life. Do you still have the, je- the jeans jacket? I do not have the jean jackets. No. The jean jacket I definitely got rid of on my own on purpose after a couple of years. Yeah. Well, anyway, right. you, um, you read the Bo Jackson book a long, long time ago. You yes. were actually, I will say, telling me very positive things about it when I was feeling very negative about it. And then you said, you know, when you decide to talk about this book for the podcast, you said, damn it, I'm the only one who should host this. Tell your wife to go to hell. So uh, here you sit. And I'm going to I'm going to hand the mic over to you. No, I absolutely think this book is fantastic. Um, I, it may be the best book you've written. It's certainly among the top three, I think. Um, and you as well. I mean, every time I think you've done an exhaustive amount of research in one book, you go ahead and, and exhaust even more. Like you raise the bar even higher. So tremendous respect. But this book is is incredible on a different level, a few different levels. But before we get into the details, I know you go through a very torturous process choosing a subject. Why this book? Why that book? Why did you think Bo Jackson was was needed or due for, for a big uh, biography like this? Wow, what a professional first question. You know, I didn't, um, people have asked me like, uh, why now? Why now, Bo Jackson? And- <laughs> The answer why now is because he entered my head as a book topic. You know, there's no like, uh, it's the X anniversary or whatever. I just thought he's a great topic. He's iconic. He hasn't had a real definitive biography written about him. His last, the last soup to nuts bow book was his own autobiography in 1990, which he wrote with Dick Shap. And I just thought like, I, I'm very nostalgic as are you a lot of, to me, sports, music, and food are three areas where we all get really nostalgic. And when I think of Bo Jackson, I actually think about, I swear to God, I was an RA my sophomore year at Delaware um, before you were even there. And as an RA, you had to have on your door, people would make these creative things on their door where you would put, I'm at lunch, I'm at, I'm working, I'm sleeping, blah, blah, blah. And so everyone in your hall knew where you were, right? Because you were the RA. I took a Bo Jackson poster and I had him in the different poses and I had Bo knows Jeff is sleeping. Bo knows Jeff is at the newspaper. Bo knows Jeff. super corny and cheesy, but I was all in on Bo Jackson. I had the other poster hanging on my wall too at Delaware, the one of him, the sportsman holding the um the bat over his football shoulder uh, pad. So I just have always been fascinated by Bo Jackson. I just thought there's a gap. This is a historic figure who isn't really being treated like a historic figure. The the big thing I took away from reading this book, I mean, all of your books. I mean, I'm always amazed at at the level of research and who you find. And oh my God, this guy, you know, caught a foul ball from this player in 1987, or whatever. But 
there, there are so many stories in this book, Jeff, from people who had one encounter with Bo. Like it's not, it's not about, you know, his greatest rivals or guys on the Raiders. Like my favorite part of this favorite parts of this book are the people who had one encounter with him who, you know, they tried to tackle him once in football in high school in 10th grade, or, you know, they, they, they struck him out once or whatever. And all of these people seem to have incredible like photogenic memories of their experiences with him. And, you know, 99% of the people we meet in life, we run into them, you know, whatever. We, we both played sports and you don't remember everybody you played against. Why do you think all of these people you talked to were so eager to talk about their brush with Bo and, and what it was about him that made it so like, it's almost like they were just waiting for someone to call and ask them once about it. So when I was a freshman in Mayo Pack High School, the big guy, the big man on campus, going old happy days terms, was uh, Dave Fleming. And he was a pitcher on the baseball team. And everyone knew he was going somewhere. I think he'd already accepted a scholarship to Georgia. He lived about eight houses up from me. But I didn't know him because he was a senior. I was a freshman. And one day, he's on the bus. I don't know why he's on the bus, but he's on the bus. He was never on the bus. And I asked someone a trivia question. It was, who is the Rams' leading rusher in the Super Bowl against the Steelers? I still remember this. And Dave Fleming turns around and he goes, Wendell Tyler, right? Why do I remember that? I remember that because it was Dave Fleming and right. he became something. And then you have this story of the one time I talked to Dave Fleming. I've told Dave Fleming that in the years since, like you remember this thing. And I just think when someone goes on to be iconic, right? As soon as he first crosses your radar as a star, you start telling your friends about the time he ran over you or the time he stopped to say hi, or the time he bought you a pasta salad or whatever it is. Like it embeds itself in your brain. So right. I'm sure these stories date back mentally 30, 35, 40 years to the first time Bo became famous and they were excited to tell their friend, oh, Bo ran over me in high school football practice. And that's why, like that literally happened. Bo ran over me in practice. A TV crew was there. That was my last time playing football. I went back to the band. <laughs> you know, like, so I just think fame gives, we all are storytellers. We all love telling stories and telling a story about our encounter with a famous person is mm -hmm. gold at reunions, at dinners, your right. kids, your wife. So I just think they stick in people's brains more than normal stories. But do you worry going back to these? I mean, my, my reaction to that is, of course, you want people to have great memories of these things. Mm -hmm. But do you worry going back to these things 30, 40 years later that Joe Smith in, in Alabama like has blown this up out of way out of proportion and has way too much knowledge of it and maybe made it bigger than it was? Because at the time, he didn't know Bo Jack. He just knew this kid from Bessemer. You know, but they didn't know at the time when Bo Jackson ran over him in practice, that was going to be a big thing. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, becomes a big star. And it's like, oh, I remember that time. Do you, do you worry as a, as a researcher, as a guy who prides himself on getting all those details right, that these people's memories are just like, well, I got to have a Bo Jackson story. This guy, this famous author is asking me about it. Yeah, of course. Well, wait, I don't think it's not I don't worry that people are lying. I worry that memory is so flexible, like it's so flexible. It just is so you remember things and then someone says, no, it wasn't like that. He was wearing purple. He wasn't wearing green or he was drinking a soda. He wasn't drinking a water or whatever. He wasn't six feet eight. He was actually five foot nine. You know, like memory does weird things. And in this way, biography is an inexact science. I can check a lot of facts. I can tell you who, what the pitch Steve Carlton was in his first at bat when he got there. I can do all that stuff, but I can't check every single memory. Mo was in high school. He stole my lunch money. I was in fifth grade. I remember it vividly. Like you do have to accept some people's stories as stories. And if it sounds too utterly preposterous to be true, that's when you do your darnest either check, check and check. Have someone, was there someone else there? Was there someone else who could verify that? Or you don't use it. Sometimes you just don't use it. You're like that doesn't check out. I can't use that. Yeah. I think I, I, I understand that. And again, it's so hard. I mean, especially, I, I mean, we're both journalists. We ask people about things that happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And you're like, tell me what you were feeling at that moment. And not everybody remembers what they were feeling at that moment. So a lot of it, you have to sort of take people at their word. Um, hey, it's such, it's such a flawed medium. If you think about it, like every article you've written, right. Where you're like, what's your first memory of playing hockey? And some guys right. like, Oh, I was on my, on the ice and my mom, but, but then it, it could have been her aunt. It could have been the kid's aunt or it could have been the nanny or it could have been the dad. Like we, we do. For the third time you played hockey. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah we yeah. depend on memory. We just, that's, it's one of the flaws of the medium is humans are imperfect and imprecise. Memory is imperfect and imprecise, but we're sort of allowed to trust it to a certain degree. Right. I agree. I agree. 
So one reason I think this bull book is going to be so successful, not just because it's good, but because I think he has stayed out of the public eye for a long time. I mean, we have all of these sports legends now who come back as broadcasters or they're pitch men or they're on camera. And like, I don't know whether it's a combination of they can't stop being in front of the camera or they just want to make money or whatever. I mean, but, you know, he's not Michael Strahan. He's not one of these guys who came back or whatever. How much do you think the fact that Bo has stayed out of the public eye, out of the spotlight for the last 20 years has contributed to sort of the mythology about him and people sort of, I, don't, I didn't want to say romanticizing, but just sort of the, the image and the myth and the aura of Bo has grown because he's not in front of our face on our TV all the time. Yeah, very much. There are two, there are two things that add to the sort of enigmatic nature of him. Uh, number one is his career was cut short. And number two is he vanished, right? Like, I had, um, I had Eric Dickerson on this podcast a few months ago. And yep. I always say this, Bo Jackson in football, maybe he would have wound up and be, um, maybe he'd wind up and be Eric Dickerson or Jim Brown, right? Let's just say something. He would have been a great, all-time great NFL running back. He stayed healthy and played eight, nine, 10 years. And in baseball, he could have been Raul Mondesi, you know, or Jesse Barfield. Like he wouldn't have been, I don't think he was a Hall of Fame baseball player, but I think he could have been a great baseball player. But he's not nearly as interesting if he becomes Eric Dickerson and Rural Mondesi as the big question mark that hangs over his head. Like, that's that's the beauty of it all. It's like, what could have been? What could have been? Oh, man, he was so talented. He could have been this. And then to vanish, to just vanish. I mean, he, he lives in, in suburban Chicago. He shovels his own driveway. He <laughs> drives a Ford truck. He does. He's on Cameo. If you want to spend a lot and get a greeting from him, you and I both love Cameo. Um, <laughs> but he's gone. He's ghost. He went ghost. He runs different companies. He's been involved in charities. He does a bike uh, charity every year, Bo Bikes Bama. But he vanished, and it makes him a trillion gazillion times more interesting, like leaps and bounds. I agree. I agree. I mean, you just, just I feel like we should do like 15 seconds on for those people who are too young to really remember what it was like. Um, I just want to ask a little bit about you about about the the Bo phenomenon. I mean, he was he was a college running back, which obviously was great. Heisman Trophy, the whole deal. Um, and I think you do a very, very important service in the book. I don't want to get sidetracked, but talking about the ridiculousness of Sports Illustrated and others sort of promoting this other candidacy that you declare very, very correctly, which was I don't want to say it was racially motivated, but it was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so he's this great college running back. And then. I guess people assume he's going to play college, play pro football and he ends up playing pro football and pro baseball at the same time. This is before Dion, before really anybody had done it at his level. And for those who are not as familiar with Bo, people younger than us might be listening. He was a phenomenon in both sports. Like he was, he was, he was a folk hero. I mean, you, that's the title of the book. He was doing things nobody else had done. But there are things in his past. I mean, you exhausted his past very well, but is there any particular reason other than the genetic freakness of him, why he was able to be this incredible in both sports? So there's a couple of things. And this is uh, you can look at Walter, another book I wrote, Walter Payton. You can look at Brett Favre, another book I wrote. You can look at Bo Jackson and you see this similarity. Um, well, number one, they're off in the South. But beyond that, like, these guys grew up, number one, beating the shit out of each other, like all their friends. <laughs> and then they were just beating the shit out of each other. They would yeah. throw a football in the air. And whoever would catch it, the other nine or eight or seven guys would just be, no helmets, no pads, just in a yard or in a field or in a ditch, beating the shit out of each other. Bo Jackson was a bad kid in many ways. He was one of 10, uh, single mom, slept on the floor, didn't have running water in his house, Bessemer, Alabama. Um, his mom could be vicious when it came to physical discipline. Uh, mm -hmm. She once threatened to shoot him. You know, he threatened to shoot kids. Yeah, somebody started are very not flattering to him as a child. I mean, he had some real rough times. He did. And I think like, I always say it's important to remember, like he was a bully as a kid, but there's usually a reason a kid is a bully. And he was a kid who grew up in abject poverty. Again, single mom, one of 10 kids, literally was wearing socks to school without shoes or his sister's hand-me-down sneakers. Like this was not an easy childhood. But the thing is, so he like, he was throwing rocks at cars and throwing rocks at other kids. He was scaling the nearby farmer's enormous ditch to run away after getting in trouble. He was beating the shit out of the nearby pig with a baseball bat. He was scaling the five foot fence surrounding his house so he wouldn't get caught. Like it was not a sophisticated method of training an athlete, but it was a raw, 
hardcore, interesting way of training an athlete. You know, it's like Rocky where he's hitting the meat with Polly. Like it's that kind of training. But I think combine that from a very early age is raw athletic training with obviously amazing genetics. His uh, grandfather had been a uh, semi-pro ball player. There wasn't a ton of athleticism in, in athletes in his family, but like he's obviously genetically off the charts and he yeah. had the training. I mean, I just think about one of the things of reading this book and, and his development was I'm thinking about all these IMG academies and Nike and they spend millions of dollars and trying to identify these next prospects. And these kids spend months and years training. And here's like a kid who was like around hogs and pigs and just like didn't have like weight training, didn't have all this stuff. And he just still became this incredible athlete, which not to say that all the people who go to these academies are wasting their money, but it just shows there's many different ways to become an incredible athlete. I mean, very clear did not have all the best coaches, all the best, you know, training, nutrition. He didn't have any of that. He just became this with his drive and his incredible uh, will to, to be great. I mean, I think one thing that is kind of interesting about modern day that's true is like, I, so I live here in Southern California and you see these kids with their $2,000 baseball bats and their private pitching coaches and their dad screaming at them to get better. And they're not going to, they're not going to rest in the off season. They're going to go to so-and-so Academy the one thing they can't possibly have that Bo Jackson had, that Walter Payton had, that Brett Favre had, is raw hunger. Literal hunger. That raw hunger is an unspoken sort of uh, driving point for guys like Bo Jackson. You talked about the what if factor of Bo and that part of the mythology that he had a great short career with the Oakland Raiders, a great Los a, Angeles Raiders, Los Angeles, sorry, Los Angeles Raiders, a good career with Kansas City Royals and then a little bit with the White Sox, but sort of like with Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and some of these musicians who sort of like died young and we sort of remember them at their youth or whatever. Is he sort of the ultimate what if athlete in the sense of if he doesn't get hurt in that game against the Bengals, maybe he makes the pro football hall of fame. If he gives up football and focuses on baseball, does he maybe make it to, to Cooperstown if he focuses just on baseball? I mean, was a lot of the research, a lot of the people that you talked to been like, man, if he had only done X, Y, Z, he could have even greater. It depends on the sport. So in baseball, as soon as he decided to play football, the Royals were pissed off. And John Scherholz was their general manager. Art Stewart was their head of scouting. And like, they just thought it was stupid. Like, they just thought it was stupid. They thought you have a chance to be something really, really special in this game. And now instead of spending your off season sort of working on this, this sport that you're really unfamiliar with. Like he was a very raw baseball player. You're just going to play football and you're going to get hurt and you're not going to develop. And this sucks. Like they were really mad about it. And Bo Jackson always resented the Royals for that anger, but I understand it a hundred percent. I can't argue with them at all. And they were proven right. You know, like he did get hurt in football that did end his career at the Royals. So from the Royals vantage point, hundred percent, I think with the Raiders, um, they were more just happy to have him when they got him. I think they were frustrated by the fact that he couldn't, he didn't block. He didn't really learn the playbook. Um, teammates found him. A lot of teammates found him kind of off-putting a little bit. I mean, definitely uh, aloof. Wasn't one of the guys. I don't think they were, fr I, I think everyone agrees. He's the greatest athlete they've ever seen. I'll argue to the end of time, he's the greatest athlete who's ever walked the earth. I think impossible. I mean, he was a freaking All-American runner in track. Could have been an Olympic track star. He would have made the Olympic team. <laughs> yeah, he would have been. He, I mean, he. Uh, it's funny because Mel Rosen, the track coach at Auburn, is now deceased, was pushing him to not play baseball and to just do track. If you just do track, man, you are going to the Olympics. You are that good. But he didn't want to, you know. He And the thing that's interesting is, of the people who are frustrated, the one guy who clearly is not is Bo Jackson. Like, Bo Jackson kind of did it the way he wanted to do it. He didn't want to just be a baseball player. He didn't want to just be a football player. This is how he wanted to do it. So you'll never hear Bo Jackson ever in an interview bemoan what if or what could have been. This is not him. So two non-on-the-field things I have to ask you about. As a member of Generation X, if I didn't ask you about it, I would be doing a very big uh, disregard to my generation. Number one, Tecmo Bo. So many people of our generation, 40, 45, 50, we played video games our whole life. We grew up on Atari, Nintendo. He is absolutely the best video game athlete of all time. I've never heard an argument against him. Can you take us through a little bit about how that happened? The game was made by a bunch of Japanese developers. And they didn't have much access to football back then. Because obviously you weren't going to watch it online because there was no online. And 
they weren't televising NFL games in Japan. They saw sort of some videos of Bo Jackson and they saw his size and they thought this is just ridiculous. And it was basically like, who is this large man wearing number 34 on this team <laughs> called the Raiders? You know, he shows up in Tecmo Super Bowl and he's ridiculous. He's the only, all right, he was the only guy who was given a 75 for speed. As an example, they had ratings for speed, right? He uh, was given a 75. Jerry Rice was 69. He was the next fastest. Bo Jackson was 75. You couldn't catch him. You couldn't <laughs> be another figure and catch him from behind. So he was almost impossible to stop because all I'd have to do is get one step ahead of any defensive character and he's gone. But they made this guy this unstoppable character. And, you know, through the years, just a gazillion writers, Bill Simmons, different guys from video game magazines are all like, He's the greatest single video game sports character who's ever walked the earth. And I agree. And it, it is really funny. So if you go on YouTube, there's this run he makes in Tecmo. Where he just <laughs> runs up and down and around and blah, blah, blah. And it's gotten like 5 million views. And him running over Boz only got 2 million <laughs> views. Is it is it the one where he goes all the way back to the one yard line and yes. then goes 90 yards? Because I'm one of the 5 million who's seen that one, I think. Me too. Me too. The other thing that obviously had much more importance than, than that is the whole Bono's campaign. And you go into the book really, really great detail about it. And and it's literally like my mom, who you and I both know, is not a sports fan. When I mentioned the name Bo Jackson to her that you were doing this book, she's like, oh, from the Nike Bono's commercial. I was like, and that that reaction has happened a few times with people who I know are not sports fans. Oh, my friend Jeff Perlman's book of Bo Jackson. Oh, the guy from the Bono's commercial is like, Nike, obviously, already, this was this was late 80s. Michael Jordan was already on his way and, and, and getting to the zenith. Was this a case of Nike just sort of seeing this two-sport freak phenomenon as like a one-of-a-kind thing and like jumping on board the train and saying, we got to build the whole marketing campaign on this? Because those commercials were everywhere. I mean, you could, the, the magazines, the, the posters, the, the print ads, they were everywhere. Number one, Nike um, was pushing Bo Jackson to play two sports before he decided to play two sports. They saw him... Really? As Bonanza, because there's a shoe called the cross trainer that they were coming out with. And the cross trainer is you can wear this and do multiple sports. So who better at the time, Howie Long was promoting it. And a uh, triathlete whose name I forgot was also promoting it. Nothing would be more perfect than having this otherworldly athlete doing two sports. So that was part of it. They signed him to a deal. And the funny thing about Bo Jackson and marketing is unlike Michael Jordan, who he's compared to, Bo Jackson was not charismatic. Um, he spoke with a stutter. He was very quiet. He was kind of surly. He could be standoffish. He wasn't magnanimous. He didn't love autographs. In fact, he didn't even like signing autographs. Like he wasn't, he was handsome that, you know, and he had a crazy physique and he had this ability. So the trick was how do we design this campaign around someone who doesn't communicate very well and isn't really lovable? The whole bow nose thing just was genius, absolute genius. And you know, it was a Wyden and Kennedy was the, the firm that kind of came up. with yeah. the And what I love, love, love. One of my favorite stories is they decide to do this Bo Diddley ad. Bo, you don't know Diddley. And it has all the different athletes. Bo knows football, Bo knows baseball, Kirk Gibson and Jim Everett and Wayne Gretzky and McEnroe. Yep. And they decide they're going to premiere the ad during the 1989 All-Star Game. And at the time, the All-Star Game was an enormous, enormous deal and got enormous viewing numbers. So we're going to do this. And Bo Jackson is making his first and only all-star game appearance. And Tony LaRussa, unrelated to Nike, decides he's going to hit leadoff. It's going to bat Bo Jackson leadoff just for the moment. The booth is Vince Scully and Ronald Reagan, who had recently wrapped up his second term as president. So it's Vince Scully, Ronald Reagan, Anaheim, California, sold out stadium. Beautiful day. Cloudless day in Southern California. Bo Jackson leads, uh, leads off the game against Rick Russell. And... Nike has this ad campaign, this plant, this ad is going to come out, uh, I think, after the fourth inning or right before the fourth inning. Mm -hmm. And in New York City and Mickey Mantle's restaurant, all the Nike executives are watching this game on TV because they're nervous about it. They're, they're kind of terrified. What if Bo Jackson sucks or what if everything goes wrong? Who knows? Right. Bo Jackson, second pitch of the game, thinker <laughs> from Rick Russell and hits this absolute bomb dead center field over Eric Davis's head. It bounces around, and there's this shot of Bo Jackson regally jogging around the bases, his white Royals uniform, super tight, his muscles showing the whole thing. And at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in New York City, the people are just cheering, and all the Nike executives are like, yeah, yeah, woo! And they're standing up, and they're hugging, and they're clapping. And it was the greatest serendipitous moment of Nike marketing, 
Bo Jackson, everything. It was really Bo Jackson's introduction as a national marketing icon. And you, you lead into one of my other questions. I mean, I am always fascinated in these great athlete stories that you write about the big issues that these guys have to overcome. I mean, Brett Favre, you know, barely survived childhood and, you know, Walter Payton also poor and, you know, even Barry Bonds had to overcome a lot. Mm-hmm. The stuttering thing about Bo Jackson, I found you humanized him. I mean, I don't say you humanized him, but you really went into great detail about how much of an issue this was for him. I mean, here's a kid, doesn't get any attention. You know, I think the first local high school sports story was on him was from a local high school reporter who just basically discovered the kids doing well in track. Is so much now is about sound bites and kids talking and promoting themselves. And, and I'm just trying to imagine for Bo Jackson, a kid who was doing these incredible things, how difficult it was until basically late in his Auburn career, I think you said, that he finally felt a little more comfortable doing interviews and all that. How difficult, how much of an impediment was this for him to have this stutter and have such a severe stutter as he's getting more and more famous and having to do more interviews? I mean, think about it. You're Bo Jackson. You're poor. You're black. You're in the deep South. You're held back a grade early on when you're in elementary school. You have this thick stutter. People make fun of you all the time. Uh, one time to punish him in one of the cruelest punishments I've ever heard of, the teacher made him stand in front of the class and read a full poem, knowing that he had a stutter just to fuck with him. Um, it was an enormous problem, an enormous problem. His stutter was really bad too. It was not mild. It was a bad stutter. And when he was at Auburn, the sports information director actually hooked him up with a uh, professor of theater who worked with him on his speaking. And it, it didn't, it never took away the stutter, but if you listen to him talk after that point, and then later on, he sort of learned to slow it down and to play it out. And instead of rushing it, a lot of people who were early in their stutters will try to rush through it. And that causes a greater stutter. And he learned, take it slow, take your time. It was an enormous, enormous issue for him. Again, I, I really think it's important when people see someone, this is one thing you learn in journalism. When you see someone and you think, ah, oh, that guy's an asshole or God, he's such a dick or why is he being that way? You just don't know their backstory most of the time. And here's this guy, again, stutter, wearing his sister's shoes to school, wearing socks to school, no money, sleeping against a heater, having heater burns on his body because he's rolling into the heater. This was Bo Jackson's background. So to expect mm-hmm. him to just be a well-adjusted, smooth operating member of society it's asking a lot out of someone. So you're telling me if I learned about Albert Bell's childhood, I wouldn't think he was such an asshole or no, he's still an asshole. You know, what's funny. I do think you would learn that he had this tough child. I just, I really think it's important. <laughs> I, I do. I know you're kidding, but I really think it's very important. We always, I do it too. Like, Oh, that guy's such a dick, blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, he might be a dick, but usually there's a reason he is a dick. And I think as journalists, it's our job to find out why is a guy a dick? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I agree. There's always something. I mean, 99% of the time, there's something behind why someone is the way they are. Some people are just, you know, a-holes. I mean, it's just the way it is. But most of the time, there's something that can be said. All right, I want to ask a couple of logistical things about the book. So you interviewed more than 700 people, right? 700 and some people, like a ridiculous amount of people. And Bo did not talk to you for the book. Um, I know that's very rarely an impediment for you, but some of your subjects have told people not to talk. Um, is there anyone that Bo sort of prevented you from getting or did he really work at the time to stop you or, or make life more difficult for you on this one. All right. So here's exactly what happened early on when I decided I was going to do the book and I got the book deal. I wrote Bo Jackson a letter and I included um, a couple of my books. I think two of my books. I'm writing this book about you. You're one of my childhood heroes. I think you deserve the treatment, blah, 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 blah. blah. And one day I'm in the backyard talking to my mom on the phone and I see a uh, unlisted number block number pop up. And I just have a feeling it's Bo Jackson. And I answer and he goes, Mr. Jeff Perlman. And I was like, yes. He goes, this is Bo Jackson. And I was like, hey. And he's like, I got your letter. And he's like, I'm driving to get my wife a salad and I wanted to call you. He was really nice, right? He was actually really nice. And we spoke for about a half hour, told me about his life. And he said, um, basically, a lot of people have tried writing Bo Jackson books. It doesn't interest me. He said something weird. He said, um, I always promised Dick Schapp, his, who wrote his autobiography with him, if I ever did another book, it would be with his son, Jeremy which is a str- I don't know. I don't even know what that means, but um, I'm friends with Jeremy Schaff. I was kind of ran it by him. He seemed a little con- confused, but, um, and I said, that's fine. But he said, Oh, and he said, he said, look, I don't mind if you do it, but I'm not going to help you. And to me, that's as good as it gets. Cause number yeah. one, it allows you to say to people, they always say, did you talk to Bo? And I goes, yeah, I did talk to Bo. And you know, he said he was fine with it. Now, as I'm going along and I'm reporting on it, I was never 100% sure if he was telling people not to talk, right? Mm-hmm. 
I couldn't tell. I think definitely with family, like I called his father wasn't really a part of his life. A.D. Adams. Uh, he lived across town in Bessemer and he had a bunch of kids. And I reached out to some of those kids. And I think A.D. Adams daughter, who would be Bo Jackson's half sister, said something to me like, never fucking call me again. So that wasn't <laughs> the best. And that might have been Bo Jackson calling, but I can only go off what he said to me. That's all I can do is just go off what he said to me. So it wasn't a problem. I will say you always prefer people say, is it better when the guy doesn't talk? It's never better. I'd always rather have eight hours, but I got lucky with something. I don't know if you're going to ask about this or not, but I'm working on the book and someone says to me, someone with Auburn said, you know, Dick Schaap donated all his notes from the autobiography to the Auburn library and they're available. Yeah. And I had to pay a certain amount and they send me all the transcriptions and all the audios. And this is hundreds and hundreds of pages, a lot of it unused material interviews with Bo Jackson from his prime. So it's me listening and reading to all these pages and pages and pages of unused transcripts. And it was absolute gold. It was a game changer in my research. To be fair though, I think we should let people know that don't ever fucking call me again is how you answer the phone every time I call you. So I think we should True. tell people. I want to ask you about, certainly we talked a little bit about the people who talk to you about, but usually there's a lot of controversy about a person's background in a book. You know, there's always things that they don't want out. There's not a lot of controversy in here about the Bo Jackson book, which is going to lead to my question after that. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's a usual athlete of juggling women and cheating on this one with that one. And big shock in the 1980s, athletes were getting paid to go to certain schools where they were great. I mean, there's, you've got a great character in this book on Auburn Booster taking out Bo Jackson for years to get him to go there. But there's not really a lot to tarnish Bo here. Would you agree? The two main things. So he had a um, he had a fiance in college named Allison, and then he met his wife while he was still with his fiance. And at one point, he might have had two fiancés at the same time. It's a little hard <laughs> to tell, but he definitely was kind of going back and forth between the two of them. And um, actually, I'm kind of proud of myself. Someone told me that he had a girlfriend in college named Allison, and mm -hmm. um, I really want to. His wife's name is Linda, and and by all accounts, like he's been a great husband and dad. There's no issue, but um, you know, you want to talk to a high school girlfriend, so. Someone told me he had a girlfriend named Allison and I got the Auburn yearbook. I got the Auburn yearbooks. I found them online from the different years. And I started looking for Allison's and there were a ton of Allison's, but there was only one African-American Allison. And back then in Auburn, uh, black football players could date white women, but nobody was allowed to know about it. It was like this unspoken thing. You could have a white girlfriend, just don't let anyone know. And, um, so I called the one African-American Allison who happened to be a Tigerette, which is like almost like the booster squad of Auburn. That was hers, Allison. And she was awesome and great and funny and interesting and had great memories and stories and et cetera. I feel like all of us in college had things we did in college where you look back and you're like, ugh, that was so stupid. Jets pendant, jean jacket, all that. Yeah, stuff. I mean, they're like different things you did back then that felt like the biggest deal in the world. And I think like, cheating on your high school, on your college girlfriend on the Richter scale of things a guy could do is like a one, maybe a 0.5. And yeah. the other thing is, is like the whole thing with the book. Now I found the booster culture fascinating. Like I really did. And I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. I thought it was riveting uh, this booster who kind of clung on to Bo Jackson. The idea that Auburn players, that boosters would give them handshakes as they ran off fields and they'd have cash in their hands. That literally, literally literal cash. <laughs> that they were getting um, that the Auburn players, they were given their X number of tickets per game and the boosters would buy them for outlandish amounts of money. <laughs> so all that stuff was really interesting. But I also feel like at the end of the day, what is a criticism of a guy who grew up in poverty? One of one of 10 kids was to a single mom taking money from a booster. It's not on him. No, he didn't do anything wrong. There's not a lot. I don't think in this book, I've read this book. There's not a lot in it to tarnish, Bo, but yet. And I don't know if this came from a publicist or a researcher or whatever, but Bo Jackson, who's not very active on Twitter, he's on there, but he's not very active. He tweeted the other day, and I quote, if someone releases an unauthorized biography, it means they're using someone, using someone else to profit for themselves. Don't be fooled into thinking this is a true representation. If you want to hear the real story, then wait for me to release it. So sounds like something either Bo or someone around him, maybe an agent wrote or whatever. And it's obviously his way of trying to get out ahead of this. Now, he has not read this book yet. How do you sort of respond to, to Bo, like sort of say, hey, whatever you're about to read in the next couple of weeks, it's not the real story. I always say this. I never blame a guy for not talking. And I never blame a guy for being like kind of having that reaction. Like 
I always say this, fill in the blank, but we use Bo here. You're Bo Jackson. You're approached by me. You don't know who I am. And I say to you, I want to write a book about your life. And you're like, yeah, I don't know you. And you're like, yeah, but I'm a, you know, I'm a writer and I've been doing this for a long time. All right. Well, how much money are you going to pay me? Now I'm not going to pay you any money. All right. Well, I guess that's okay. But um, am I going to be able to read the book before it comes out? No, you definitely were not. Yeah. All right. Well, can I have some editorial control of the things I can tell you not to write and you won't write them? No, nothing. I would say, what is a benefit for Bo Jackson? But that being said, if you use that argument, so no one can write a Trump book versus but Trump. No one can write Obama book versus but Obama. No one could write a DiMaggio book, a Malcolm X book, a Martin Luther King. No one's allowed to write a book about a historic figure except the historic figure. You never find out the truth. So you never find out the truth. And like, I had this talk, a long talk with Howard Bryan about this because he wrote the Ricky Henderson biography, which is great. And Ricky Henderson was kind of a jerk about it. And it's like, you are a part of history. You're a historic figure, factually. Your exploits were ours to observe, to enjoy, to engage. Telling the story of your career is not an indictment of you, but you don't only owe that story. Like, you just don't. And it just, again, it always comes back to me. If you're going to make that argument, fine. But then only Donald Trump can write a Donald Trump book and only Barack Obama can write an Obama book. And no one's allowed to write about history except the figures themselves. And the thing I will say also, I just want to say, Bo Jackson wrote an autobiography in 1990, okay? To me, one of the biggest parts of this book and one of the most engrossing parts of the book is the death of one of his college teammates, Greg Pratt, who was a fellow running back who died of heat stroke while running laps during a drill that they shouldn't have been doing. In Bo's autobiography, Greg Pratt isn't even mentioned. So I just think like, it's fine. You want to have your truth and your side. And there's a place for autobiographies. And I encourage him to write another one if he wants to, but it doesn't diminish the importance of a biography. The Greg Pratt story is honestly one of the most emotional things I've ever read in, in, in one of your books. I mean, I was near tears reading it. I was, I was really like, I, I texted you right afterwards. I'm like, oh my God, this is like unbelievable. And I always feel like you get, that's why I'm saying about the people around Bo were so amazing. I mean, it was a great story in the book about the guy who gave up one of his first college home run to Bo and the guy has passed away now and his wife and kid were like, this is all he talked about. He loved telling this story. I mean, just the, the sheer joy I think people got talking to you about, Bo. Was this one of the more joyous books you got to work on because people were so excited to talk about this person? Yeah, because it, honestly, God, is like talking about seeing Bigfoot. Like it really is. Like there's a, uh, there's a moment during his junior year in baseball when they go to Georgia for the first night game ever. Uh, <laughs> and your guy, Tommy Tomlinson, was great. Their writer Tommy oh, yeah. Tomlinson was great because he was at the game. But it's this game. There's no video of it anywhere. There's very little record of it. I found as much as you could. It's the first night game at Georgia. They play Auburn. It's a huge deal. They finally got lights in this crappy stadium. Fans in the outfield behind the fence in right field. The fans are just riding Bo Jackson from the beginning. His first at bat, he grounds out. He runs back out to the outfield. They're giving him all sorts of shit. Second time at bat, <laughs> he hits a home run that hits the lights, right? <laughs> hits the lights. This is 39 days before the natural comes out in theater. <laughs> he goes back out to the outfield and they're bowing at him. They're all bowing at him. And he hits two more home runs in that game. His last at bat, he hits a double and they boo him. So <laughs> the next day, they're playing again the next day. And the pitcher for Georgia was a guy named Larry Lyons. He was a transfer from a community college in Georgia. And he goes up to Bo. He sees Bo sitting alone in the Auburn dugout. And he says, uh, hey, I just want to shake your hand. I've, I never thought I'd be a part of history. And Bo Jackson gives him a, a cold stare and then starts laughing. He goes, oh, man, it's all good. And that guy, Larry Lyons, I mean, he gave up. The first home run in the night history of Georgia, he gave it up to Bo Jackson and he loved, loved telling that story. And he texted me and he said, uh, make sure you make sure you're right about the glorious first time he was up when I got in the ground out. Like he was great. People love this stuff. They just do. It's yeah. fun. It's Sasquatch, you know. All right, I got to ask a couple, couple impossible questions. What do you think was Bo's greatest athletic achievement as a pro? I've got two nominations that I'm not going to say, which I know people know about, but you, you've literally written about, talked about, seen all of it. Greatest athletic achievement. Could be something from high school, college, pro, Raiders, Royal. What, what do you think was his greatest achievement? I'm going to go two. Is that all right? Yep. All right. I think number one is when he's in high school and he's a senior. <laughs> anyway, he wins the, the state to Catholic <laughs> championship. Wait, with a sprained ankle. And he, 
he's so far ahead that he skips the 1500 because he hates running distance. So right. he, he always tried to get as far ahead as possible. So he wouldn't have to run the last event. So it would always look closer than it was in the final stats. Cause the other kids would run the 1500, but he wins the state decathlon championship. And then a day later pitches his only game for McAdory high that year. It's a state playoff game. And he strikes out 13. Like it's bonkers. He also for not for nothing <laughs> stole 90 out of 91 bases in high school. And I did find I did find Sam Doss, the only catcher to throw him, to out. Throw him out from Jess Lanier. That was a good find. All right. So one is that just the back to back preposterousness of that. Did Bo like trip over a rock on the way to second base? And that's why he got thrown out that time. No, the guy just made a perfect throw and it was a high fastball. And this guy had okay. a, has a strong arm. Number two, to me, just because of the weirdness of it, has to be running up the wall in Baltimore. I show that to everyone because it doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't make sense. He's running toward the wall. Everyone else would stop, of course. He runs up the wall. Then he runs parallel to the ground and down the wall. And what I love is I talked to a lot of different guys from major league teams, and they all told a similar story of like the next day and the day after that, they were all shagging flies trying to run up the wall wherever they were. (laughs) No one even came close to it. It really speaks to his athletic genius. It's the only time we've seen it. You've never seen it since, ever, anywhere. We haven't seen Mike Trout do it. No. See Dave Winfield do it. We haven't seen anyone do that. It's funny, the two I was thinking of, which of course you didn't say because there's so many, was the Harold Reynolds throw. And if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, literally you Google Bo Jackson, Harold Reynolds, and it's amazing. And the fact that he was a major, successful major league player after the hip injury. I mean, the fact that he actually came back and recovered, and it was very difficult. You, you, you talk about how gruesome and difficult it was for him, and he was a shell of his former self. But he, people forget, he had a legitimately solid year with the Chicago White Sox. He couldn't sustain it, of course, but to come back, and this is 1990, this is not, I mean, it's 30 years, but a lot of medical advances in the last 30, 35 years, that he came back and was able to have that last act of his career was just, I thought, so amazing because he should never have played again. I mean, there was no way, based on what his injury was, that he should have played baseball again. I have two thoughts on this. Number one, with the Reynolds throw, the thing I love about that is if you watch a replay, you see Jim Lefebvre, the Mariners manager, and Bob Diddy are the third base coach come scream at the umpires. And I talked to Bob Didier as a third base coach. And he's like, I wasn't arguing that he was safe. I was arguing that the umpire was so out of position. And the reason the umpire was so out of position is the same reason half the members of the Royals and the Mariners were walking up the tunnel when that play happened. Because if Reynolds scores, the game's over. And they all just assumed he was going to score. So it's crazy, crazy, crazy. And um, the hero on that play is actually Bob Boone, the catcher, who kind of deeped pretended to Reynolds the play was over. It was really good. But, um, and then with the hip, I actually, I can't argue with your point on that. Like his hip was, it was, it was like the artificial hip your grandma would have gotten back then. Like it was no different. It wasn't like, oh, here's a special hip. It was made of plastic. It had metal screws and the metal would scrap off the plastic. So like the metal wasn't perfect and it would, it would kind of turn from time to time. And that when you, when the hip would move, the plastic would scrape off the metal and you'd have little bits of plastic floating in your joint it was Jeez. a really fucked up hip like it wasn't a good hip yeah and he comes back there's also a throw he makes against mike Gallego of the yankees when he was tagging from second to third and he's in the outfield he's in right field with the white Sox. it's just bonkers i mean he wasn't nearly the player he had been he couldn't be yeah. he didn't have the speed anymore and his last year with the angels was a really sad year because his hip was starting to deteriorate and his body was falling apart but just being able to, I mean, you're right. Like playing with an artificial hip for multiple major league seasons is utterly preposterous. Ridiculous. But how was researching this book different from your other books? And in a sense, was was there almost too much material? Because even though he had a short career, this is a two-sport athlete. So he had teammates in both sports. He had Auburn football teammates. He had Auburn baseball teammates. He had Auburn track teammates. He had, you know, Raiders teammates. He had, you know, Royals teammates. Like there's a lot of people that you could talk to for this book. Was there almost too much material? And was it hard to like call this down into, into a book because there was so much good stuff from so many people? All right. So first of all, there's no such thing as too much material because you'd rather have too much and too little, obviously. I, yeah. Um, it's funny. There was one play. People always ask with different books. I inevitably get the question. Is there stuff you left on the cutting room floor? And I'm right. always like, why would I leave anything on the cutting room floor? But this book, I actually did leave stuff on the cutting room floor. Like um, one of my, I'm doing on Twitter, um, the top, my top 10 favorite plays of Bo Jackson. And number 10 was a run his senior year against Georgia Tech. Seven guys have chances of tackling him and none of them do it. And I interviewed six of the seven guys on Georgia Tech. Like I really was into this clip. 
And one of the guys was a defensive lineman, but he missed Bo. And as soon as he missed Bo, he decided he was going to run a straight line down the field to get to the end zone <laughs> and meet him at the end zone. It failed preposterously. But I reported that run to death. Like I truly did and used none of it. And it broke my heart. I cut the whole thing. Because after a while, how many great runs can you write about? Like after a while, yeah. it does get repetitive. That is more of the issue. Like he did this and then he did this and he ran over this guy and he ran over that guy. And it's a, you got to be careful with that. You can't be too. Yeah. So there are yeah. great boat plays that don't make it in, but overall it's a great problem to have, you yeah. know, is a good problem. I would say more than anything, the problem is like he's super guarded and he wasn't going out drinking like Brett Favre. Right. He wasn't a dick in the way Barry Bonds was a dick. Like those two things are interesting. If a guy's going out partying all the time or a guy's a dick, he wasn't like that. He didn't have super tight chums on the Royals or the Raiders. And he was close with like Mark Ubiza and Saber Hagen and yeah. uh, George Brett. And he was close with Howie Long and Bill Pickell, but not a ton as close. So the challenge more was it's this really guarded guy with an enormous public image to yeah. crack through that is a little bit of a trick. You had so many great stories. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but there was one story where a guy like pretended to fall down so he didn't have to get embarrassed by trying to oh. talk. It was like a lot of those stories where it's like he could have made it, but you know, I'm not going to get embarrassed again. Like That's the run. Bo Jackson, it's his first touchdown in the NFL. It's when he runs over Mike Harden of yeah. the Broncos. Yeah. He just steamrolls him. And I talked <laughs> to a guy, Tony Lilly, who is a uh, yeah. defensive back with the Broncos. And he said, James Lofton was blocking him. And he's saying to Lofton, Keep blocking me. Keep blocking me. I don't want any of this. And Mark Haynes was a defensive back with the Broncos, former giant. And he later told Lily, he's like, I, I just, I had to make the business decision on that. I was getting, I was going nowhere near that. It's funny. Awesome. All right. So now the big $64 million question here. And, and this is, this is such a fantastic book and, and I hate to make a, a what if about it, but right. given the two sport athlete that he is, and given the incredible specialization, it's sort of a two-part question, incredible specialization that he is, is it likely that a coach or somebody along the way, a Bo Jackson-type kid coming around now, he just gets one sport beat out of him, and he's just told, look, you know, I don't care how much you is, because we haven't had, I mean, you know, we guess Shohei Otani is like an example. But Shohei Otani is a hitter and a pitcher in baseball. Like, he's not a two-sport athlete. Like, we've had Dion, we've had these other guys, but let's say somebody comes along now with so much specialization and so much year-round play, could a Bo Jackson happen now? Okay. I've been thinking about this a lot. You would think no. Like intellectually, you would think no. Like I look again here in Southern California, these kids are just beaten into one sports submission, which sucks. Right. But then the, the contradiction to that is players now have much more power than they ever have. They have more power than they ever did. And if 10 years ago, it wouldn't happen now, he's told, but if 10 years ago, LeBron James said, I want to try out to play tight end with the Dallas Cowboys. The Cavs weren't going to be able to say no. They would have to let him do it. Or if Kobe Bryant, when he were alive, you know, said, I want to play baseball in the offseason. Like, he just was too powerful to say no. And also the marketing opportunities would be crazy. You know, it'd be a bonanza. Yeah. Bo Jackson times a million. So I do think it'll happen again. I actually do. The sexy answer and the better answer for my book is no. I think someone will come along and play two sports. I just think it has to be the the idea of athletic and empo athlete empowerment is what would make it happen. Where some athlete is like, I don't care what you say, this is what yeah. I want to do. And then the last part of the question is so much more exposure now than than anybody had back then. I mean, what do you think the media pressure, the media spotlight would be on someone like Bo Jackson now? Because they'd have no off season because they're basically twelve months a year they're playing. They're playing football from August or July, July, sorry, baseball from February to late September, October, okay? Then you're playing football from October basically to January. Then you're playing baseball again. I mean, was he, for, I guess my question, was he fortunate to grow up in a time and be a superhero in a time where there wasn't this insane Twitter, Instagram, social media pressure? And a kid like him who had the stutter, who wasn't comfortable, would have maybe just would have been would have suffocated under this kind of pressure today. So is it almost better that he wasn't a product of this time? Because someone at his level doing both sports 12 months a year that he was, I think he would have just it just the media intensity would have just been so much. It just would have been suffocating for a person. Um, it's funny because you look at the two two sport guys of that era, it's Dion and Bo and Dion was made for social media. You know, Dion would have eaten that up and he would have oh, yeah. 
And Bo Jackson was not made for that. Even his, like, you see him on Cameo and it's a little bit clumsy. Like, he's just not that guy. Like, when he played with the Royals, the Royals were, um, like, they were covered by, you know, two beat writers and a couple of TV stations. Every now and then a Sports Illustrated or a Sporting News or whoever would come into town or Bob Costas would do some blah, blah, blah. and And they every now and then they'd be a national game of the week. But otherwise, you weren't seeing them. Nowadays, you'd see them all the time. You would see Bo Jackson all the time. You'd have every internet guy, you know, every, it'd be insane. I don't think it would destroy him because I just think he'd ignore them all, which he was pretty good at. Yeah. But I, I think it would be far less fun. And I think the mythology, I think the mythology around him would not be the same because we, we have everything. We see everything. Like it was better to not have his high school football games would be on national TV now. Like, you know what I mean? It would right. be. We'll give props to your, uh, your hero, Joe Posnanski. He was the one who said the last full cure and his whole yeah. meaning behind that was, he, he was talking about the Reynolds throw in Seattle, right? And it's funny because if you watch the replay of it, and everyone's seen the replay of it, you don't actually see Bo release the ball. Like, you see the ball traveling, through, you see Bo get it, but then they shift the, the shot to Reynolds rounding third. So that's really where it comes from is like, we assume he threw the ball. We kind of know he threw the ball, but we didn't actually see him throw the ball. Nowadays, you would have had 17 different angles of him throwing. In fact, you would have had 100 different angles because everyone in the stadium would be recording it. So right. Bad cast velocity and all that ridiculousness. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's why he's a folk hero because it's like Paul Bunyan. There's so many things that we just never see and we have to take. We just have yeah. to believe or not. Well, I think this is such an important book for people to who are younger to not who don't understand just what a phenomenon he was. And and I think you did you did a usual bang up job. And uh, truly, it's a fantastic book. Last folk hero coming out October 25th, right? October 25th. Right. The drop. Right. Um, I have every confidence that it'll be a bestseller. I tell you when things are not good in your books. I mean, I, I, I let you know when things are not good. This book, it was just so joyous to read. Like just, the, I just laughed out loud. It's a athletic achievement. It's just like, it's amazing. So I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, I think I'm, I'm glad we didn't get into too many of the stories of the book. I almost like don't want to give it away to people because there's so many great, like one-off stories that you did a great job uncovering. Um, and it's just phenomenal. And I think it's going to be very successful. And I think Bo would even like the book if you ever read it. Thank you for hosting Two Riders Slinging the Egg. Of course. I want to thank today's guest host, Michael J. Lewis, for helping me out on Two Riders Slinging the Egg. You can follow Michael on Twitter at MichaelJLewis75 and read his engrossing blog at MichaelJLewis.wordpress.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging the Egg, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I don't make any money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Waddell. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>